For a long time, I've been wanting to uh, preach a series on, on the mothers of Jesus, and um, I mean by that in Matthew's genealogy, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the very beginning of the New Testament starts with a long genealogy, and the, the purpose of that is to prove to the Jewish readers and to everyone that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, super important beginning to the book. And in that, in that genealogy, Matthew does something that's almost unheard of in ancient Jewish society, and that is he includes these women who were um, part of Jesus' ancestry, which is completely unheard of to do that. Uh, and in Matthew doing this by the direction of the Spirit, we know that God is directing our minds to that, that there's something important in there. Uh, all of the women we can see that are in Matthew's genealogy are they're all outsiders, uh, they are all up against incredibly difficult circumstances. And as we read through their stories, I hope that you will we'll be able to see and be encouraged by the fact that they all are remarkable examples of faith. And because of that, they're included in that genealogy as examples to all of us uh, of, of, of persevering in faith and trusting in the one thing that's worthy of being trusted in, no matter what our circumstances. And so, uh, as I, I had a little bit of hesitation Honestly, should I do the story of Tamar for in the Christmas season as an Advent story? Because it's a little gnarly, as we're about to read. Uh, but I brought it to brought it to the elders, to to the leadership, and they were like, they were like, it's scripture, <laughs> and it's there for a reason. And Tamar was in that genealogy for a reason. So why don't you dig into it and see what comes out? And as I did. Uh, I was blown away, and so I hope that everybody will be as encouraged as I have been studying this chapter this week. So I'm, gonna ask, I'm not going to ask you to stand. It's a long reading, but let's now listen intently together to God's inerrant word from Genesis chapter 38. Now, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira, and there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again, bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. And Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the seed on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. And then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house, until Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. And so Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Well, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. 
for she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. Now when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he, returned, he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, Well, what will you give me, and you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she replied, Your signet, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. And so he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. And when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hands, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. And you see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. And moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. And afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Thank, praise be to God. Uh, I came to faith, as best as I can tell, was regenerated on December 12 of 2005, right before Christmas that year. And one of the things that I remember that I'll never forget about that first Christmas uh, was we went to some relatives' house for a Christmas party, uh, relatives that had been Christians for a long time, and they were playing Christmas carols at the house, and these were Christmas carols that I had heard a million times growing up, and yet this time, as I was sitting there in the house listening to the words of these carols, I was just, I could not believe what I was hearing. I was shell-shocked by the words. I was literally sitting there in front of the, in front of the stereo as these things were playing, and tears were rolling down my face, and I was looking at my relatives going, do you hear, you hear what they're saying? Do you hear what they're saying in this song? There's a newborn king. <laughs> He's our king. The nations have been reconciled to God. We're joyful. There's an angelic host, and we're singing along with him. Do you understand what this is saying, what's happening right now? It's overwhelmed by the words of these songs that I heard a million, million times before. My relatives, who had been decades, or had been Christians for decades, were like, yeah, yeah, Rob, they're great. 
wondering if maybe I not hadn't had a relapse in the bathroom a little earlier that day. What was that? What was happening? My relatives, they've been Christian for decades. And, you know, as you go along the Christian life, you go along in the walk, you get busy with things. And, you know, sometimes the luster of the promises and the newness of the beauty of the gospel can start can start to fade, and then you listen, you know, to, you can begin to passively listen to the Christmas carols, and they're just kind of songs again. But for me, uh, for me, I was unfamiliar with them in a good way. They weren't new to me, but the newness, the newness was in my heart. I had finally, God had recreated my heart. I was a new creation in Christ, and all of a sudden, these songs, like, took on this life. I could not believe what they were saying. They were so, so beautiful. It was like I was hearing them for the very first time, and in a sense I was, because I was for the very first time hearing them with the eyes and the ears of faith. They were so wonderful, there was almost an anxiety around it. I was like, oh my, there's almost a fear that they might be taken away, and so I kind of grasped onto them even harder. Uh, I'll never forget that first Christmas. Now, in a very small, in a smaller way, that story kind of tells the story that we just read. Uh, when we read the story of Tamar, the ancient customs and the social mores of that time are so very foreign to us and so bizarre that our first reaction as Western Christians is to read that and go, Wow, that's really weird. <laughs> but the reality of that story is it's, a, it's contrasting Judah, who's a patriarch. He's the guy who was born into all the promises, who all the promises should have been, uh, uh, promises should have been so bright for him, and yet in the story we see Judah is in the process of discarding all of those promises. They have become less important to him. <laughs> As he's gone on in the faith, they become uh, less meaningful to him. And he's contrasted with Tamar, this Canaanite girl who was new. And she, out of all the people in the story, is able to see the beauty of God's promises. Uh, and she holds on to them with everything she's got. And that's really the basic idea of the story. The big idea of the story is that really against all opposition... Tamar holds on to the promises of God because she can see how valuable they are. Against all opposition, Tamar holds on to the promises of God because she can see how valuable they truly are. And in that and in her story, I hope that it will open and rekindle our hearts to the beauty of the promises that we have in God and what it is we're waiting for. So let's look at, let's look at that one part at a time. First is against all the opposition. Well, the dark side, one of the dark sides of the sexual revolution, and with it, uh, no-fault divorce in our culture, uh, and both of those things often touted uh, as, uh, being, as being liberating for women uh, the reality and the dark side of it is, is that oftentimes those things end up just being very, being destructive in the lives of women. That women oftentimes end up getting the short end of the stick in 
in, in both of those things. And I was reading this story, I uh, was reading, caught an article, caught my eye, a woman named Jane Morris. Jane Morris and her husband, Peter, uh, they had both met. Jane was a corporate headhunter. Peter later became the managing director of a software company after Jane had helped him get through school. Uh, and then after he had got through school, she had spent the next 20 years of her life <coughs> raising, uh, having kids, raising kids, taking care of the home. She left the career field. Uh, and as happens all too often, after Peter had become established in his career and the couple had become very wealthy, uh, he decided to trade Jane in for a newer, younger trophy wife and really left Jane hanging with nothing. Out of the workforce for 20 years, really no skills uh, available. Her skills were so rusty that she had very little to no earning capacity, while Peter, on the other hand, a rising executive is managing a partner in a software company, had a whole future ahead of him and great earning potential. And through that process, he just left her out in the cold. And it's kind of, man, it's hard to even imagine the sense of betrayal that she would have felt and the hurt that she would have felt. I mean, I... All of us in certain ways have been betrayed in small ways by friends or uh, even in, you know, doing church. There's, you know, you hurt each other and you sin against each other and, and there's that pain. But to be betrayed and, and, and disowned and sent away by the one person that you had, that had, you had trusted and loved the most, it just has to be overwhelming how overwhelmingly terrible and terrifying that would be. Uh, it makes, sometimes I hear stories like that, it just it makes my blood boil. It's so, I get angry, I get angry. Because it happens all too often. And it isn't a new thing, this is something that's always happened. It happened in the ancient Near East, and essentially that's what happened to Tamar in this story. <coughs> Tamar's plight what had happened to her, in a nutshell, is that she had lost her security. What's happening, the bizarre thing that you see in the beginning of this story where her husband dies and then her, Judah tells her, her brother-in-law to marry her to her brother-in-law so that she can raise up uh, offspring for her brother. It was an ancient custom called Leverite marriage. Leverite is a Latin word for brother-in-law. And basically, it was the old... The old covenant way, or the old ancient Near Eastern way of protecting legal rights and protecting property rights and inheritance rights for the deceased relative. Her husband had died, he wasn't going to have any heirs, so the next of kin, the closest genetic relative, would then have children, would, ha would, would, would have a child with, the, with his sister in law to raise up an heir. Uh, for his name, but not only that, it wasn't just, it wasn't just to perpetuate the dead son's name, it was also to provide a security blanket for the widow. Without an heir, without a place in the family, she had nothing. So the only thing, the only security that she had, the only way that she could have a place in that family uh, and a secure future was in that process of Leverite marriage the brother-in-law produced an heir. With the heir, she was part 
secure in the family and had children who can then take care of her. And so that's what's going on with all that. That's what's supposed to be going on, right? But when you read the story and you read between the lines and you see what's really happening, it's much worse than that. I mean, she marries this man, this Judah's son, who uh, outside of, he is the first person in the Old Testament who was individually called out by God and killed by God directly for his wickedness. There's Sodom and Gomorrah, there's the flood, but Ur, Judah's son, uh, it must be something real special because he is called out individually and killed by God. So we see that Tamar's first husband, whoever he is, whatever it was he does, was a bad dude, and she most likely suffered greatly at his hand. And then Judah assigned the second son to her. The second son could have refused. He could have refused to take on that duty. He would have been publicly humiliated, but instead of doing that, what he just, instead of refusing it altogether, all he did was just take advantage of Tamar. And if you're in the, in the original, in the Hebrew, you can see that it's repetitive. He's, over, he's going and being with his sister-in-law, not at all to take care of the duty and to secure her future, but for his own purposes. He's just using her, and he's doing it over and over again. And God, in the wickedness, kills him as well. And then Judah, Judah, who's now really his only concern is that his third son will die in the same way, not really even seeing the cause and effect relationship, but somehow superstitiously thinking that Tamar is the cause of this problem, refuses to give her his third son and sends her packing with no promise, with no security, uh, and lies to her, sending her away to her father's house with no intention no intention of doing what he was supposed to do and providing for her and for her security. And so the story, the story of Tamar, even just up to that point, is one where she is suffering over and over again at the hands of abusive men who are really concerned about nothing but themselves. Uh, you know, and that's kind of hard to see, right? When we see the patriarch's name, you see Judah... We look at it from our perspective in the background. We know that Jesus comes from the line of Judah. We know that Judah was chosen by God uh, to be the heir and to the line of the, of, the, of the Messiah to come through him. And so oftentimes we read old stories in the Old Testament. We see the name Judah and we just kind of gloss over what he does or we assume that he's essentially righteous and we don't really pick up on what he's doing. But look at what is happening with Judah. This is... In the, in, the, in the narrative of the story, Judah and his brothers have just sold their youngest brother into slavery, Joseph. Uh, they're in the promised land. They have the promises of God. They are the covenant family. They know through their father, Abraham, uh, that through them is going to come a descendant, a Messiah who is going to save the world. They know that much. Abraham passed that knowledge on to his son, uh, Jacob then had the knowledge. Jacob then taught his sons, including Judah. They had those promises. They were in the, the covenant, but things started going on. They were waiting. Turmoil tr 
happened, sin in the camp, trauma. They sinned against their youngest brother. They sold him into slavery. And then in the wake of that trauma and of that sin, things just started to break apart. And here we see Judah has left his family. He's moved out of fellowship with the covenant family. And where has he gone? He's gone to hang out with some guy named Hira, the Adulamite, which means he's from the city of Adulam, which is a Canaanite city. Judah has disregarded, left the promises behind, and he's moved into the Canaanite city to work and live and basically live the Canaanite dream. And that's what he's doing when all of this happens. Judah doesn't really care about the death of his sons so much. We don't really even see him mourn. What he's really concerned about is he doesn't lose the third son and his heir because that's important. That's all he cares about, really, himself. Judah certainly doesn't care about Tamar. She's just an annoyance to him. And at the first opportunity when he learns of her pregnancy, even though he is guilty of the exact same sin, he takes that opportunity to remove her permanently without any remorse. And we see that Judah doesn't care at all about the covenant promises. The promises that were handed down to him from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to his brothers and him. He doesn't care anything about those covenant promises. He doesn't care anything about Abraham's offspring, including him and his offspring, becoming like the sand of the sea. He doesn't care anything about the promise of that one descendant who is going to come and save the whole world from the mess that they're in. Uh, he doesn't care about any of it. Sin in the camp, scandal, trauma, waiting, and he's over it, and he's off to be a Canaanite and do Canaanite stuff and live the Canaanite dream. And the fallout of all that is that Judah is the guy with the power, and Tamar is the girl with no power, and he could care less about her and what the, her rights are. And the fallout is she, he betrays her and she is in danger of losing, secure, using the security of being in that family. That's the position that she's in. And yet something amazing happens. In the course of that, Tamar holds on with all she's got to the promises of God. That's the second Second part, with everything we got, with everything she has, we see Tamar holding on to those promises. A lot of times, most times maybe, the story that I just told you about Jane Morris, the lady who was uh, unceremoniously dismissed by her husband after serving and loving him for 20 years, most of those stories end bad. In fact, uh, you know, there was a, in, I remember in the late 80s, there was a lady named Betty Broderick where the same thing happened to her and she took matters into her own hands and took revenge against her husband and his new wife ended up in prison. And, uh, most of the time, women like that are left powerless without earning potential, left to struggle with their own, sometimes even with kids, and they've got, they've got nothing. Uh, but in this case... In Jane Morris's case, having it being 30 years later, this was recently, 
she had some options, and she had some attorneys, and she put together a defense in divorce court, and at the end of the day, what happened was the judge awarded her over 90% of the family's wealth. Really, it left her husband, left, left Peter with 66,000 pounds. This happened in England. And gave Jane not over 90% of the family's wealth. And so, you know, you hear that and you think, you hear that and you're like, oh my gosh, vindication, one, one great victory in the, in the, in the face of evil. And we, we rejoice in that. The same way that maybe, you know, you hear a story about mothers who are, you know, single mothers who the husband is bounced, the deadbeat dad, and the, the, the mothers come up with some daring and uh, amazing plan to catch the husband and to make him pay the child support that he owes. You hear crazy stories like that, and you're like, wow, that's amazing. She's like a heroine. It's like victory, and you rejoice in that, right? Well, that's what Tamar did. No, I get it. We're Western Christians, and you hear Tamar dresses up as a prostitute, seduces her father-in-law, and the first thing out of our, you know, the first thing in your mind is just like, oh, that's really weird, man. That's just bizarre and weird. But look at Tamar didn't have divorce court. Tamar didn't have family court. Tamar didn't have alimony. She didn't have child support. She had nothing, nothing but her wits, and, and an anxiety that, that the promises that she saw were going to be taken away. And so what she did was launch a rather brilliant plot <laughs> to secure for herself the rights that she deserved in that culture. So when we hear this story and it seems weird to us, we just have to get over it, okay? And got to just get over it with, your, with our cultural mores and understand that what she did was essentially the same thing as a heroic mom who gets the child support she needs or a woman who fights in court and wins the divorce, wins, uh, you know, wins, wins the greater share of the outcome like Jane Morris did. That's exactly what Tamar did. It was a brilliant plan launched by a desperate woman to get the rights that she deserved in that culture, in, in middle Assyrian law where this was taking place, a woman had a right to have an heir by the closest male relative. And since Shelah was not being offered, that was Judah was the guy. And he, in his wickedness, was refusing to come through for Judah. So that's what happened. But there's still a big question big question in that is, is this, why, why did Tamar, who was a Canaanite, in a Canaanite city, and Judah was no, was no, uh, Judah was no regular guy. Judah, all those guys were wealthy men. He was on his way to the shearing of his flocks. That's a hallmark of a very wealthy man. So he probably wasn't marrying run-of-the-mill your everyday middle-class Canaanite girl. She was probably maybe even a Canaanite princess. Why would a, would a, would a high-level Canaanite woman with her whole family backing her cling so tightly to this foreign family and these foreigners and her place in that foreign family? She was back at her father's house 
Obviously, Judah didn't want anything to do with her. She could have been like, I'm done with that nonsense. I'm going to find a nice Canaanite guy, and we're going to have a nice Canaanite family and a nice Canaanite future, which she probably could have totally done. Even, even She may even have the power in that culture to bring charges against Judah as a, as a, a foreigner in that culture, and yet she didn't, she didn't do it. Why? Why was she hanging on to that promise? Yeah. You know, I, like I said, I had some hesitations about pre- preaching this passage, but when I saw this, I knew I had to preach it. And here's the, the answer is that out of everyone in this story, Judah the patriarch, born into the promises, Judah's sons, heirs to the promise, out of everybody in this story, Tamar, this little Canaanite girl, is the only one who sees and understands and appreciates the promises of God. It's not just she's trying to get to, uh, secure in any family. She understands this is the covenant family. This is the family that God has made the promises to. She is des- She wants to be a part of that family so bad. She is, willing, she is so anxious to not lose her place in that. And she has so much faith that the promises that were given to Abraham were true. She's willing to do anything. She even launches this daring plot that literally puts her life in danger in order to not lose that spot, to hold on to that spot with everything she's got. And as it turns out, in God's providence, it wasn't just for her and her spot in that, in that family line. In the, in the genealogy of Jesus, we know that God had chosen Tamar this outsider, to be one of the women in Jesus' genealogy. And in that huge display of faith, uh, that remarkable display of faith, the Holy Spirit had Matthew immortalize that and put it in the very first chapter of the New Testament, honoring her and honoring the faith that she had. She was holding on to that promise so tight because God had regenerated her. She had a new heart. God was holding on to her, and she was not going to let that go for anything. And so what she did, as weird as it sounds to us, was this crazy, remarkable act of faith and holding on to God's promises no matter what the opposition was that she faced. She saw, out of everybody in this whole chapter, the one valuable thing, and that was being in the covenant. And that's the last part. Tamar saw how valuable the promises of God are. Um, we started this church <laughs> like 10 years ago. It, it was a Bible study in North Park in this apartment in North Park, and it was rough, let me tell you. <laughs> We had, I mean, it was rough. It was hard to tell who was going to be there that week. But we had one guy who, who, 
his meds never lined up, and so he was constantly just like falling asleep on the couch with a cigarette while I'm trying to teach. And another guy who just would miraculously like disappear out of nowhere, we'd be like, where'd Sammy go? Uh, people would get like angry at stuff I taught and get all puffy. Uh, it was rough. It was rough. But one thing, the one, there was this one, let me see, here's why I'm telling you the story. There was this one family a mature Christian family that started coming, the Wagner family, John and Krista Wagner, and their kids started coming to our Bible study and coming all the time. And I was like, why are these people coming? They must be like saints. <laughs> they must just really like have servants' hearts and they just love us and they really want to come and help because we're such a mess. And so one day I, I asked, I sat John down, I said, why, why, are, you why are you coming? You know what he said? He goes, he goes I grew up. I grew up in this stuff. We were going through the Westminster Confession of Faith, right, as, as a bunch of <laughs> crazy rough new believers. No one told us that you shouldn't do that, right? So we, so we just did it anyways. And, and we were going through the Westminster Confession of Faith, and every week we are just like just blown away by God's majesty and sovereignty. And it was like, it was like hearing those Christmas carols. We couldn't believe it. Now, we couldn't believe that this stuff was true. We could not believe that the gospel was that good. And we could not believe, we couldn't get over the fact that God had somehow chosen us to be part of it. And John was like, man, I grew up in this stuff. I've known it since I was a kid. And, uh, you know, I, I, I take it for granted. I totally take it for granted. It's just kind of background noise to me. But when I come to your Bible study... And I see you guys who are just like teary-eyed. You cannot believe how beautiful and wonderful this is. And the way you guys pray, uh, it just encourages me and strengthens me in my faith. <laughs> and that's really the lesson that Tamar can give us in this Advent season. First lesson is that you know, what we have in Jesus is so much more beautiful than anything the world has to offer, anything the world can offer. And, you know, I, it's even hard to put it into words what that means. You know, it so, can be so abstract to know that you are an heir to the kingdom of God, to know that we are co-heirs with Jesus, to know that we are going to be glorified uh, in, in bodies, to know that we are going to be confirmed in ethical righteousness, meaning that we will no longer, we will, it will be just as easy for us to be perfectly holy then as it is for us to be sinners now. Uh, to know that we, uh, we don't even know what we will be like, that we know that we'll be like Jesus. You try to wrap your mind around that. How, how do you even, how do you even, how do you even, whenever... C.S. Lewis said, when, if you saw who we were going to be, you would fall down and worship. You just can't even wrap your mind around that, how beautiful and wonderful those promises are. Uh, 
I'm sorry, I got to do a Lord of the Rings reference, just not because, just because, not gratuitous, but we just, you know, my wife broke her leg, and so we were sitting around the living room, and we just did a marathon of Lord of the Rings with all the kids again, and at the end, Aragorn's being crowned, Every, all the people are in their, on their, in their royal finery on the top platform of Minas Tirith, and there's a ceremony of, the ro- of royalty and the royal family and of victory, and you watch that. If you're into it, your heart just kind of surges and you get like tingly all over. Why? Why is that? And you want that. You want it so bad. You want to be a part of it so bad. And why is that? It's because those, those pictures, those symbols are all drawing off the greater reality of the truth of the gospel, of what we possess in Jesus. And it touches us and it, it touches us in that place and we relate and we know, at least subconsciously, that that is true. That is our reality. You can't see it yet. We're in, the, we're in the waiting. We're under oppression. We are under hardship. We're in suffering and pain. But we know that one day, whatever that picture is, the truth of it is going to be tenfold in glory and beauty and power, and we are going to be there, having been recreated in a completely new world with Jesus. I mean, that's what's so astonishing to you when you first become, you know, a Christian and you're like crying at the Christmas carols or you're like, it's astonished at how beautiful the gospel is. And so, you know, but then you go on in the Christian life (laughs) and you start getting busy and then like little by little, the work that you do for Jesus starts to supplant the time that you spend with Jesus and then before you know it, you kind of lose that, you lose the edge on it. So what I, I hope what I want to come out of these, this sermon series of Advent is, is to rekindle our wonder at the beauty of what we really have in the gospel, to remember that and to approach it and to see it the way Tamar saw it as something so valuable and so worthwhile that she was worth, would do anything to hold onto it a little more tightly, also knowing that God is holding on to us as we hold on to it. Second big thing is that this teaches us is that f- faith overcomes any hardship. No matter what was happening to Tamar, no matter how much Judah was oppressing her, no matter how much sin was affecting her in the world, n- her sin could not affect that faith that she had that held on to the promise. None of that oppression, none of the things that they were trying to do to her in the world could affect or take away the faith and the position that she had in Christ. And the same is true with us. No matter what kind of hardship we're facing, no matter what kind of opposition we're facing in the world or how much we may be struggling in, 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 our, in this place and this time, God has given us faith and nothing can overcome that faith or take it away from us and what means that we are secure in it. And the last thing is that this teaches us is that God's not afraid of a little scandal. <laughs> in fact, he built it into the story. Isn't that remarkable? This is what God, like, providentially chose to do. Uh, all, all the women that we're going to talk about in this Advent series are embroiled in some sort of scandalous, scandalous behavior, all the way down to Mary, it even appears that she, at least appears to everyone that she's in scandalous. So God's not afraid of a little scandal. In fact, our 
faith in Christ oftentimes will look like and be scandalous to the world. And we can sit in that. But also, it lets us know that whatever our scandalous past may be, that that's not a barrier to faith. It's not a barrier to uh, God's acting and working in our lives. So not oppression, not scandal, not anything. No matter what, we are secure in God's promises because of the faith that he has given us. And so let's do our best to cultivate that faith and to see the promises that we have as the most beautiful thing in the world. Amen? Amen.